Thanks for joining us today on Mormon Land, where we explore news in and about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm Managing Editor Dave Noyce. I oversee the Solid Tribune's faith coverage. I'm joined by Senior Religion Reporter Peggy Fletcher-Stack. Hello, Peggy. Hi, Dave. We remind you about another way to support Mormon Land. Just go to patreon.com, where with a donation as small as $3 a month, you can access transcripts to our podcast, our complete newsletter, and all of our exclusive religion coverage. Again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Mormon Land. Now for today's show. No one likes pain or poverty, bigotry or war, frustration or failure, disease or doubt, joblessness or homelessness or loneliness. That includes today's guest, Melissa Inouye. The Latter-day Saint scholar has endured more than her share of heartache. She inexplicably lost her hair at a young age. And then at 37, the marathon running mother of four was diagnosed with colon cancer, an affliction she has been suffering from and through ever since. But as in a way reminds herself and Latter-day Saints in her new book, Sacred Struggle, Seeking Christ on the Path of Most Resistance, a carefree, trouble-free world is not what humanity signed up for. An easy earthly existence under Mormon theology was Satan's plan, not God's. Divine design, in a way writes, calls instead for agency, personal growth, compassion, and caring for others, and living a life full of life, end quote. The good and the bad, the ups and the downs, the hopes and the hopelessness, as God's children learn to be more like their heavenly parents by following and finding Jesus. She joins us today to talk about this sacred struggle. Melissa, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, before we dig into specifics, why is struggling good for us? <laughs> well, nobody likes it, but there are a lot of things that we don't like which are good for us. So, I hate to fall back on the sports metaphor, uh, but just in general, when our bodies are forced, we force our bodies to kind of push themselves beyond their natural limits, they usually respond and develop new capacities. And I, that's what happens with us on a spiritual level, I think, and on a personal level when we struggle, which is like not fun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to dive into, uh, you know, the cancer that you've been dealing with. It seems there's a metaphor for life in the cycle of chemo treatments uh, you endured. What has your cancer taught you about struggles in life? Uh, so you're referencing the two week chemo cycle. Yes, the 14 day thing. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. So um, in the past and currently I'm on this two week, once every two weeks chemo cycle, which is kind of like a little mini like death and resurrection, like mm -hmm. every time. So um, I'll do the chemo and I'll just kind of feel myself getting more and more tired, um, sick feeling the first couple of days. And then um, over the course of the next like 12 days, you know, I'll get better and better and uh, feel stronger and stronger. And, and then I'm ready to go for the next one. So I guess, um, you know, it's not actual resurrection, but it teaches me that things have beginnings and ends that um, you can take a lot, that change is constant and that um, nothing horrible lasts forever. You, you know what jumped out at me when I read that is you hear a lot of people say they're having a hard time on something. They're going through some struggle mm -hmm. and they'll, they'll find hope in the fact that tomorrow's a new day. 
things will get better. But the thing that jumped out at me is tomorrow can also bring a new round of pain. Mm. You know, um, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, there's all sorts of horrid possibilities in everyone's future. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily have to be a better day. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, people always saying hope in the morning and, you know, the sun will come up and things will happen. And but sometimes it brings pain instead, even though you, things were going, starting to go better, you know, like you're recovering from your treatments and then, but you're going to endure it again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like that idea too. The, the kind of the, the rhythm of it, which is to say, at least with you and with this, you can say, well, this will be over in this many days because you have enough patterns of it. And I think lots of people think, okay, if I can make it to this, a sports analogy works for that too. Mm -hmm. You know, you're running a marathon, you are like, it's going to be over in 26 miles or whatever. Um, so I want to switch around to something else you said in the book. Um, why do you say the church is not a refuge for all people? It, it is a refuge for lots of folks, but not everyone. Why would you say that? Well, I think what I said was um, I used to think about the church as a refuge from the world's problems. But now I see it as a sort of central problem hub connecting us to the problems of all humanity. And what I mean by that is when I was growing up in this very idyllic, I, I, well, for me, it was idyllic, this um, very loving, close-knit ward in Costa Mesa, California. I just felt like, you know, we were the best. Um, nothing was ever wrong. Everyone was always awesome. You know, I felt completely safe and loved. And it was just, you know, just the beautiful, ideal kind of Latter-day Saint community that I experienced as a child. And... Um, but when you become an adult, you know, you, you see differently and you, you realize, you know, that actually everyone's a real person. Um, any community is susceptible to the same problems that, that are in society. And, and then as, as I became an adult who had lived in different places, different countries, um, I noticed how, you know, in different places, there's different aspects of the gospel that are emphasized. There's um, different ways in which people are raising their children in a, a distinctly Latter-day Saint way for them, but like totally different from what other people would do. So, um, and I also found that um, like certain cultural, well, th that that points to certain cultural differences and distinctions that are very, very, well, that I think are like impossible to, to change or shift or overcome in terms of, you know, making them not relevant to how people become Latter-day Saints. And, and so from that point of view, um, just taken more broadly, you know, anytime there's a group of Latter-day Saints in any place, those Latter-day Saints will be subject to the same pressures that are in society at large, you know? And, and that's just a little different from how I saw it as a kid. I just thought as a kid, you know, we have this little cocoon and we're right and, you know, we've got the profit. And so we're going to be better than everyone else. <laughs> but, you know, when you become older, you find out that Latter-day Saints can be susceptible to, you know, the same temptations and abuse of power, corruption, um, just like anyone else. And so, but what I think, um, I don't think this is like a, a deal breaker. Indeed, I think it's like part of the genius of Joseph Smith's um, 
inspiration and organizational vision because the Latter-day Saints are in these communities that are based on geography. Uh, We don't really choose each other. We have no choice. We just stuck with whoever we're stuck with, including people who are different, who reflect society and the prejudices and the partisanship of society. And we just have to learn how to love them. Which is, I think, key. And then if you expand that community beyond your own neighborhood or city or state or country and take in what it means to have made covenants to bear the burdens of, you know, fellow believers all over the world, you'll see that there's very little that we have in common with each other. And yet we've made these covenants. And I think that's beautiful and sacred. Is that kind of what you meant when you said that the church is not problem free, it's problem full? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh huh. And I, I think that's the point. I mean, we all know that there are problems, but what organization has said, uh, even though there's all these problems, everyone has to love one another mm. and like make sacred covenants and be bound to each other eternally? Mm. Yeah, that's cool. I love that. So it, it was also in that part you talked about how LGBTQ members often don't feel like church is much of a refuge. Is that does that fit into your concept of these little communities? I think in every day and age and in every place, there are always different people who will feel on the margins of wherever the church is. Um, you know, for years, non-American Latter-day Saints have felt at the margins of wherever the church is, you know, that, that difference, that space, that feeling of, um, whoever they're talking to, I don't think they think they're talking to us, you know, or I don't think they have our experiences in mind. You know, that's a, a kind of constant theme in the history of the church is a, an American kind of center has tried to, or not tried, has, has tried to, um, come to terms with its global presence. So, um, yeah, LGBTQ issues, gender issues, marital issues, issues of leadership transition. So many different issues um, are in many ways, um, you know, really critical for people and, and can be very alienating depending on where they are, um, where they're living. So um, this your interpretation of the New Testament story about the rich young man. Loved it. Can you describe what you took out, what you take out of that story? Well, this is the famous story um, in Mark and Matthew and Luke where um, the rich, some places they call him the rich young man, some places they call him the young ruler, um, comes to Jesus and says, you know, what shall I do that I can obtain eternal life? And Jesus says, well, don't keep the commandments. And he's like, oh, I've done that um, since birth. And Jesus is like, uh, looks at him and it says in Mark, Jesus beholding him, loved him. And he said, one thing thou lackest. Um, and then he says, go, go your way and, um, sell everything you have, give it all to the poor, uh, and then come follow me. And then the young man was super sad. He was like, I don't think I can do that. And then, and he went away. And, um, when you think about that young man, you know, uh, like I think in the past, I've always been like, well, Good thing that's not me. You know, I'm not rich. I'm not a ruler. But when you think about uh, like the privileges that we have today, like in a modern society and the comforts and the ability that we have to just go anywhere in the world, we're actually probably a lot 
richer and more powerful than that young man. So, so I think um, we should feel a little more implicated in this story. And the thing that's really implicating is um, I think that what that rich young man lacked, I mean, when, if you're wealthy and you're young, then you haven't like earned it through a lifetime of struggle, right? You've, you've inherited your wealth. And, and if you've always like kept the commandments um, since birth, you know, you've been trained since birth to, to like live a certain way and, and, and which, you know, protects you from a lot of things, which is great. But so I think what the rich young man lacked, oh, sorry. And, and let me just say one more thing. Is it them Jesus coming, uh, the, the, the young man coming to Jesus follows this pattern in the scriptures where someone will go to Jesus and say, Jesus, you know, help me with my affliction. And Jesus helps them. So like um, blind Bartimaeus goes to Jesus and says, Lord, you know, help me. And Jesus says, what do you want? And he says, I want to be able to see. And then Jesus blesses him. Or um, Jesus is, you know, followed around by the by thousands of people and he sees that they're hungry. And so um, he provides them food. So this wealthy young ruler comes to Jesus and, um, you know, says, what can I do? And Jesus looks at him compassionately and says, give everything away. So what the rich young man lacked wasn't his eyesight, wasn't food, but it was lack itself. He had lived this privileged life and, uh, and he, not, nothing had ever gone wrong for him. And he'd, he'd never known what it was like to be powerless and alienated and marginalized from society. And I think, and I guess Jesus prescribed that for him. Yeah. Lacking. He lacked lacking, which I've taught that to several people since I read this and it has everyone thinking about that. And they're all, I seem to resonate with a lot of people that I've mentioned, you know, too, that, that he lacked lacking. So. Okay. You write about members, how members can deal with like past statements or policies from the church that either are or seem at odds with current teachings or even the gospel overall. How, for instance, can members, you talk about treat, for instance, Brigham Young's past racist remarks. Well, I think it's, um, as a historian, I feel a responsibility to people in the past who can't defend themselves because they don't talk anymore. And um, as a person of color, um, I see how, you know, statements made even, you know, hundred, hundred years ago, more than a hundred years ago can still like have wounding implications for today, you know, for, for people um, like me or today. But in general, I think um, as a historian, we have the duty to not compare our strengths with someone else's weakness. Um, Some of the things that people in the past saw dimly, like the value of people, despite the color of their skin, you know, we now see clearly. But some of the things that we see dimly, they saw clearly. And in another hundred years, we're going to find out what it was that we didn't see. And is it okay? Would, would, would we like the people of the future to just throw us out to just like say our, our lives weren't moral or valid or useful in some way as, as, as a moral, I don't know, exemplar or teaching tool. I don't know something. And um, we'll become like totally worthless people because of the things that we don't see today. You know, this, it's going to happen to everyone. So, um, so I guess this is to say that, um, 
I just like to think of, you know, Latter-day Saints have a really strong view of kinship and this idea of everyone being connected to each other eternally. And if you think about that, you know, if everyone, everyone connects to each other, we're eventually all going to be related. I mean, right. Like Mm -hmm. we are all related, you know, if we take those kinship um, networks seriously. And so we can think about, you know, our ancestors who said things that were really hurtful um, in a kind and compassionate way. And we can help them, um, you know, like we, we do a lot of things for our ancestors. We offer them, you know, proxy baptisms, uh, proxy sealings. Maybe we can offer them proxy repentance, like by understanding the things that they did that were, that were um, hurtful and, and trying to make amends in the present. You, nobody wants to, leave a, you know, shards of glass in the road that are going to splint pop the tires of other people. Um, maybe they didn't know they were leaving those things in the road. Um, but like, I sort of appreciate it if I did, if my kid came along, like driving behind me, it was like, mom, something fell out of your car and it was shards of glass and it's going to pop people's cars. You know, I would, I would, I would take that as a kindness if someone helped to clean up, um, the harmful mess that I had created, like inadvertently. Mm-hmm. Oh, you put it in language that Latter-day Saints would recognize too. We call it redeeming the dead is what you say. Right. And you say that if I found this interesting. You said like Brigham Young, you speculate is probably learning the things that he said in the past weren't appropriate or not right. And you say, you know, he probably doesn't want members or whoever using those statements to justify in this case, their own prejudice. Right. Could you explain a little bit about that? Right. I mean, I guess there's two, this is total speculation, right? Of course. But there's like two possibilities. Like the first possibility is like Brigham Young is like dug in on this one position because of that. When president Nelson said, you know, Latter-day Saints should like lead out in like abandoning attitudes and actions of president prejudice in this speculative scenario, Brigham Young would be like, no, you're wrong. You know, actually they bared the curse of Cain or whatever. Or in the second scenario, you know, Brigham Young has continued to support all of the successors to him in this, um, sacred calling of prophet and, and to kind of appreciate them and support them through their struggles and help them out. And also like learn with them as they're learning. And, and I, so I think when president Nelson said Latter-day Saints should lead out in abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice, Brigham Young was, you know, cheering and being like, yes, like, please, thank you. Like, let's, let's go for this. I, I just think it's more reasonable than like this big war in the afterlife. between, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. So it was sort of along that line, you describe the church as being true and living. And why is that important? That kind of along the line of what mm-hmm. you just said. Well, I'm a historian of China and I've seen what happens. Uh, a historian of modern China. I've seen what happens when people try to build a utopia out of nothing. Just like. It's like they have like these plans on paper or they don't even have plans on paper. They've got like the slogans for utopia and then they just like go out and enact the slogans. Um, It just doesn't work. There's just something really organic about having societies that work. Um, And so when I say true and living, um, something that's living is, is organic. It's, you know, connected to these natural processes. It's subject 
to natural elements and forces, which always means that, you know, there's always going to be um, irregularities and perfections and things that, you know, don't look perfect. But as a historian, again, of modern China, I'm like highly suspicious of anything that looks perfect because that stuff's usually not real. So, um, <laughs> so we Latter-day Saints can like breathe a sigh of relief that we don't look perfect because that means that we have real communities with real people and that we're really going about this project that our heavenly parents gave us, which is to love one another despite massive differences and in so doing to allow our hearts and our spirits to kind of encompass the whole of humanity. I, at one point you write about, I think you say Satan was the first perfectionist. I believe that's what you say. Um, which you just talked about, you're leery of anything that is quote perfect. So how does the dangers of perfectionism that maybe Latter-day Saints and others may deal with equate with Jesus admonition to be therefore perfect? How do you balance those? Hmm. Well, I, th- I think that's a good question. And the question is, what does Jesus mean by perfect? I mean, when I was thinking of, so I've always been like an overachiever. Um, and I always like wanted to get a hundred percent, you know, or like five out of five. And, um, I thought sadly when I got cancer or, you know, when I was became bald or, you know, whatever, all the various things that happen in life. I'm like, Oh, now I'm not five anymore. And I'm like going down. Maybe I'm like a four. Oh no. Now I'm like a 3.1, you know? Um, but when you think about it, you know, this idea of like a five out of five star review is like Satan's plan, you know, like nothing ever going wrong, never making mistakes, never having to kind of go way down and then climb way back up. Like if you think about it, a really great life is a life with big ups and downs that ends up maybe somewhere around 2.5 out of five, you know? But, you know, when you look at Jesus's life, like was that a life that totally avoided any setbacks? No, he, he jumped into, well, in the first place, he was, you know, born in a marginalized situation. He was from a place that people laughed at, you know, like, could anything good come out of Nazareth? He, um, and then when he started his ministry, he just kind of jumped into his society, all of his society's stickiest, most difficult situations and, and reached out to people who were alienated and marginalized. He, He didn't have a home. You know, he said like foxes have holes, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You know, so, and then he ended up, you know, being captured by the the local imperial power and and executed. Mm -hmm. So I'd say if we had to kind of give Jesus's life a score of, uh, from an Amazon review point of view, it'd definitely be like around like one or something, you know, like lots of things went very poorly for him. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's what made him like the savior because he, he descended below all things. And Unfortunately, I think in order for us to follow Jesus, like, I hope it doesn't mean we all have to like be physically crucified because that sounds terrible. Um, But I think it means to follow Jesus, we have to descend below some things that are really bad. And that's, I think, what makes like our heavenly mother and father who they are. Melissa, what are your desires for women in this patriarchal faith? 
Okay, so I wrote this essay in the book called um, The Elephants in the Room, Patriarchy and Other Pachyderms. Mm-hmm. I just like being able to say pachyderms. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess, I mean, it's, it's obvious. Um, I think it will be wonderful if Latter-day Saint women can have more opportunities to be um, in the room of people who are making decisions. Mm-hmm. I think that the church itself has realized this as an institutional priority, which is why they've started to include more women in the, in those rooms, like in the, in the executive councils and so on, which is a very encouraging direction. But I think we have to just generally grapple with the reality of patriarchy, which is everywhere. And I used to teach at a very, awesome, enlightened, liberal university in Auckland, uh, Auckland University of Auckland. There's tons of patriarchy at the University of Auckland. Patriarchy is just, is just everywhere. It's not just um, in our one church. It's just a kind of fact of human civilization. And I think we're always trying to kind of, um, you know, wiggle out of it and, and find new places to be. So I don't think it's a, like a particular fault of um of any religious movement or or you know that that we have patriarchy installed in our institutions because that's just how civilization has been um i think that i do think um here i'm kind of soapboxing a little tiny bit that um we suffer a little bit from a mindset in which we only look at like administrative hierarchies um, as a sense of, as a place where there's power. So as a cancer patient, for example, um, I've got a spine and muscles, uh, but the thing that's killing me is invisible. It's, you know, it's really small and, um, it circulates, you know, it's like, it's like a, a goopy small thing that like circulates through the body. So, so this is just to say that, you know, vertical hierarchies, the structures of power are not the only places of power. They're not the only sources of energy. And um, I think we would be remiss and indeed um, disrespectful of Latter-day Saint women if we didn't acknowledge their power in Latter-day Saint communities. They have a ton of power. Um, they don't have like power to kind of proclaim doctrine in the way that the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency, who are all male, do. Um, but in terms of like the local life of the congregation, the experience of being a Latter-day Saint, um, that, that magical feeling that I had in the Costa Mesa first word of being like in this community that took care of everyone, that's not insignificant. That's very significant. And that power largely comes from Latter-day Saint women. So talk about how you, how did you learn to better enjoy general conference sermons? How did I learn to better enjoy? <laughs> uh, well, listening to general conference talks, you can take it in two ways. One, you can kind of hyper analyze everything in the talk and kind of like decide whether that person's like a partisan of yours or not. Um, or you can just listen to the talk and see if there's something that, you know, God can teach you. And I think, um, the latter version is usually a little more rewarding because, um, you know, I think it's a blessing that we have a varied leadership and that we have, um, 
Yeah. It's a blessing that we have a very leadership. And so in a whole general conference session, you will hear many different talks from different people with different experiences and backgrounds. And, you know, people who are leaders in the church should not have to be all things to all people. They can just be themselves. Um, and so I think we can just listen to them and try to learn from their experiences and backgrounds. You note in the book how small the church is on the world stage. Um, do you think Latter-day Saints in Utah, where you're living now, where the church remains predominant, understand this? And, and is it important for them to do so? I mean, you know, I mean, in Utah, the church is ever present, it seems. But most places in the world, people haven't even heard of the church. Is, is that an important thing to understand? I think so, because people outside of Utah pay a much higher cost to be members of the church. Um, I was talking to someone who had lived in Japan for years and she's like, and to do my visiting teaching, I had to take a train uh, and travel for four hours with my kids to see my visiting teaching. And then I had to travel back. So it was like a whole day event, you know, while here I could walk across my back fence, just shout across the back fence to see the person I'm assigned to minister to. So um, also in society, you know, when in Utah, the church is this kind of a predominant local power, but everywhere else, the church is reviled, um, seen with a lot of moral suspicion. And so that means that, you know, to join the church, you're, you're leaving polite society in a way and becoming members of this what people see as a kind of derelict, suspect, dodgy religious cult. Mm -hmm. It's like, it takes us, it takes a huge sacrifice and we should appreciate that and understand that. So last question, what do you hope your readers, Latter-day Saints in particular, will take away from this book? Well, I thought about this and I think there's a, a couple ways to describe the book. One, it could be just like Melissa has cancer and she's trying to explain this to herself, which is possible. Um, another one is, I think it's like a love letter to the Latter-day Saints. I think it's, um, I think it points to the power that I found um, through my faith and through the community and through the theology to um, deal with really hard things in life. And even things like, um, you know, like the history of the church, which you know, sometimes people find is difficult because of, you know, stuff that Brigham Young said, or, you know, all this stuff in history, you know, there's like a huge footnote there, <laughs> but, um, you know, the history itself is also inspiring um, not just like in, you know, the pioneers walked across the plains in hand carts, but just uh, people um, coming together, organizing, people doing things together, people seeking God together. That like as a religious historian, you see that people seeing God, hearing God, getting directions from God. That's like they're like a dime a dozen. They're not special at all. It happens all the time. What's really special is where there's a community of people that stays faithful to each other over time. 
And for whatever reasons, I think some of which are in my book, um, you know, even though we're a really tiny community, the Latter-day Saints have, have persisted um, and have expanded and are still trying, struggling with this big problem, honestly, of holding together. It's a big problem, but the, that's the whole point of, um, of building Zion is to hold together, even though we're really different. I just think that's really cool and extremely powerful. And, uh, it's, I see how, um, you know, for some people at certain times or in certain places, um, it's just not, it doesn't feel like a safe place. Um, I respect that. For me, it's been um, just this incredible source of um, support and power. And I, I really appreciate that. The name of the book again is Sacred Struggle, Seeking Christ on the Path of Most Resistance. Melissa Inouye, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Be well. And thanks to Peggy Fletcher Stack. Always a pleasure. And to our producer, Christopher Samuels. We remind you that you can keep up on all the happenings in and about the church by subscribing to the Sully Tribune's free Mormonland newsletter. Just go to sltrib.com to sign up and we'll talk again next time on Mormonland. <laughs>